Section 46 of A Popular History of France, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kathy Barrett. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 4, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 34. Henry III and the Religious Wars, 1574-1589, to Part 1. Though elected King of Poland on the ninth of May, 1573, Henry, Duke of Anjou, had not yet left Paris at the end of the summer. Impatient at his slowness to depart, Charles the Ninth said, with his usual oath, quote, by God's death, my brother or I must at once leave the kingdom. My mother shall not succeed in preventing it. Quote. Quote, Go, said Catherine to Henry, you will not be away long. Quote. She foresaw, with no great sorrow, one would say, the death of Charles the Ninth, and her favorite son's accession to the throne of France. Having arrived in Poland on the 25th of January, 1574, and been crowned at Krakow on the 24th of February, Henry had been scarcely four months king of Poland, when he was apprised, about the middle of June, that his brother Charles had lately died, on the 30th of May, and that he was king of France. Quote, Do not waste your time in deliberating, said his French advisers. You must go and take possession of the throne of France, without abdicating that of Poland. Go at once, and without fuss. Henry followed this counsel. He left Krakow on the 18th of June, with a very few attendants. Some Poles were apprehensive of his design, but said nothing about it. He went a quarter of a league on foot to reach the horses which were awaiting him, set off at a gallop, rode all night, and arrived next day early on the frontier of Moravia, an Austrian province. The royal flight created a great uproar at Krakow. The noblemen, and even the peasants, armed with stakes and scythes, set out in pursuit of their king. They did not come up with him. They fell in with his chancellor only, Guy de Fort, Sieur de Pibrac, who had missed him at the appointed meeting-place, and who, whilst seeking to rejoin him, had lost himself in the forests and marshes, concealed himself in the osiers and reeds, and been obliged now and then to dip his head in the mud to avoid the arrows discharged on all sides by the peasants in pursuit of the king. Being arrested by some people who were for taking him back to Krakow and paying him out for his complicity in his master's flight, he with great difficulty obtained his release and permission to continue his road. Destined to become more celebrated by his writings and by his Catrin Moreau than by his courtly adventures, Pibrac rejoined King Henry at Vienna, where the Emperor Maximilian II received him with great splendor. Delivered from fatigue and danger, Henry appeared to think of nothing but resting and diverting himself. He tarried to his heart's content at Vienna, Venice, Ferrara, Mantua, and Turin. He was everywhere welcomed with brilliant entertainments, which the Emperor Maximilian and the senators of Venice accompanied with good advice, touching the government of France in her religious troubles and the nominal sovereign of two kingdoms took nearly three months in going from that whence he had fled to that of which he was about to take possession having started from krakow on the eighteenth of june fifteen seventy four he did not arrive until the fifth of september at lyons whither the queen-mother had sent his brother the duke of alencon and his brother-in-law the king of navarre to receive him going herself as far as bourgoin dauphiny in order to be the first to see her darling son again the king's entry into France caused, says de Thou, a strange revulsion in all minds. Quote, 
During the lifetime of Charles the Ninth, none had seemed more worthy of the throne than Henry, and everybody desired to have him for master. But scarcely had he arrived when disgust set in, to the extent of auguring very ill of his reign. There was no longer any trace in this prince, who had been nursed, so to speak, in the lap of war, of that manly and warlike courage which had been so much admired. He no longer rode on horseback. He did not show himself amongst his people, as his predecessors had been wont to do. He was only to be seen shut up with a few favourites in a little painted boat which went up and down the sun. He no longer took his meals without a balustrade, which did not allow him to be approached by any hearer and if anybody had any petitions to present to him, they had to wait for him as he came out from dinner, when he took them as he hurried by. For the greater part of the day he remained closeted with some young folks, who alone had the prince's ear, without anybody's knowing how they had arrived at this distinction, whilst the great, and those whose services were known, could scarcely get speech of him. Showiness and effeminacy had taken the place of the grandeur and majesty which had formerly distinguished our kings. The time was ill-chosen by Henry the Third for this change of habits, and for becoming an indolent and voluptuous king, set upon taking his pleasure in his court, and isolating himself from his people. The condition and ideas of France were also changing, but to issue in the assumption of quite a different character, and to receive development in quite a different direction. Catholics or Protestants, agents of the king's government or malcontents, all were getting a taste for, and adopting the practice, of independence, and of vigorous and spontaneous activity. The bonds of the feudal system were losing their hold, and were not yet replaced by those of a hierarchically organized administration. Religious creeds and political ideas were becoming, for thoughtful and straightforward spirits, rules of conduct, powerful motives of action, and they furnished the ambitious with effective weapons. The theologians of the Catholic Church and of the Reformed Churches, on one side the Cardinal of Lorraine, Cardinals Campeggi and Sadolette, and other learned priests or prelates, and on the other side Calvin, Theodore de Bise, Melanchthon and Busser, were working with zeal to build up into systems of dogma their interpretations of the great facts of Christianity, and they succeeded in implanting a passionate attachment to them in their flocks independently of these religious controversies superior minds profound lawyers learned scholars were applying their energies to founding on a philosophical basis and historic principles the organization of governments and the reciprocal rights of princes and peoples ramu one of the last and of the most to be lamented victims of the saint bartholomew francis hotman who in his franco gallia aspired to graft the new national liberties upon the primitive institutions of the franks hubert languet the eloquent author of the vindicici contra tyrannos or de la puissance légitime du prince cure le peuple et du peuple sur le prince john baudin the first in original merit amongst the publicists of the sixteenth century in his six livres de la république all these eminent men boldly tackled the great questions of political liberty or of legislative reforms. Le Contrin, that Republican Treatise by de la Boétie, written in 1546, and circulated at first in manuscript only, was inserted, between 1576 and 1578, in the Mémoire de l'État de France, and passionately extolled by the independent thinker Michael de Montaigne in his Essai, of which nine editions were published between 1580 and 1598, and evidently very much read in the world of letters. 
an intellectual movement so active and so powerful could not fail to have a potent effect on political life before the st bartholomew the great religious and political parties the catholic and the protestant were formed and at grips the house of lorraine at the head of the catholics and the house of bourbon conde and coligny at the head of the protestants with royalty trying feebly and vainly to maintain between them a hollow peace to this stormy and precarious but organized and clearly defined condition the st bartholomew had caused anarchy to succeed protestantism vanquished but not destroyed broke up into provincial and municipal associations without recognized and dominant heads without discipline or combination in respect of either their present management or their ultimate end catholicism though victorious likewise underwent a break-up men of mark towns and provinces would not accept the st bartholomew and its consequences a new party the party of the policists sprang up opposed to the principle and abjuring the practice of persecution having no mind to follow either the catholics in their outrages or royalty in its tergiversations and striving to maintain in the provinces and the towns where it had the upper hand enough of order and of justice to at least keep at a distance the civil war which was elsewhere raging languedoc owed to marshal de danville second son of the constable anne de montmorency this comparatively bearable position but the degree of security and of local peace which it offered the people was so imperfect so uncertain that the break-up of the country and of the state went still farther in a part of languedoc in the vivarais the inhabitants in order to put their habitations and their property in safety resolved to make a league amongst themselves without consulting any authority not even marshal de danville the peace-seeking governor of their province their treaty of alliance ran that arms should be laid down throughout the whole of the vivarais that none foreigner or native should be liable to trouble for the past that tillers of the soil and traders should suffer no detriment in person or property that all hostilities should cease in the towns and all forays in the country that there should everywhere be entire freedom for commerce that cattle which had been lifted should be immediately restored gratis that concerted action should be taken to get rid of the garrisons out of the country and to raise the fortresses according as the public weal might require and finally that whosoever should dare to violate these regulations should be regarded as a traitor and punished as a disturber of the public peace Quote, as soon as the different authorities in the state marshal de danville as well as the rest were informed of this novelty says de Thou, they made every effort to prevent it from taking effect nothing could be of more dangerous example they said than to suffer the people to make treaties in this way and on their own authority without waiting for the consent of his majesty or of those who represented him in the provinces the folks of the vivarais on the contrary presumed to justify themselves by saying that the step they had taken did not in any way infringe the king's authority that it was rather an opening given by them for securely establishing tranquillity in the kingdom that nothing was more advantageous or could contribute more towards peace than to raise all those fortresses set up in the heart of the state which were like so many depots of revolt that by a diminution of the garrisons the revenues of his majesty would be proportionate augmented that at any rate there would result this advantage that the lands which formed almost the whole wealth of the kingdom would be cultivated that commerce would flourish and that the people delivered from fear of the many scoundrels who found a retreat in those places would at last be able to draw breath after the many misfortunes they had experienced End quote. 
it was in this condition of disorganization and red-hot anarchy that henry the third on his return from poland and after the saint bartholomew found france it was in the face of all these forces full of life but scattered and excited one against another that with the aid of his mother catherine he had to re-establish unity in the state the effectiveness of the government and the public peace it was not a task for which the tact of an utterly corrupted woman and an irresolute prince sufficed what could the artful manoeuvrings of catherine and the waverings of henry the third do towards taming both catholics and protestants at the same time and obliging them to live at peace with one another under one equitable and effective power henry the fourth was as yet unformed nor was his hour yet come for this great work henry the third and catherine de medici failed in it completely their government of fifteen years served only to make them lose their reputation for ability and to aggravate for france the evils which it was their business to heal in fifteen seventy five a year only after henry the third's accession revolt penetrated to the royal household the duke of alencon the king's younger brother who since his brother's coronation took the title of duke of anjou escaped on the fifteenth of september from the louvre by a window and from paris by a hole made in the wall of circumvallation he fled to dreux a town in his appanage and put himself at the head of a large number of malcontents nobles and burgesses catholic and reformed mustered around him under this name of no religious significance between the two old parties on the seventeenth of september in his manifesto he gave as reasons for his revolt excessive taxation waste of the public revenues the feebleness of the royal authority incapable as it was of putting a stop to the religious troubles and the disgrace which had been inflicted upon himself quote, by pernicious ministers who desire to have the government in their sole patronage excluding from it the foremost and the most illustrious of the court and devouring all that there is remaining to the poor people he protested his devotion to the king his brother at the same time declaring war against the guises king henry of navarre testifying little sympathy with the duke of anjou remained at court abandoning himself apparently to his pleasures alone two of his faithful servants the poet historian d'aubing was one of them heard him one night sighing as he lay in bed and humming half aloud this versicle from the eighty-eighth psalm quote, removed from friends i sigh alone in a loathed dungeon laid where none a visit will vouchsafe to me confined past hope of liberty End quote. Quote, sir said d'aubing eagerly it is true then that the spirit of god worketh and dwelleth in you still you sigh unto god because of the absence of your friends and faithful servants and all the while they are together sighing because of yours and laboring for your freedom but you have only tears in your eyes and they arms in hand are fighting your enemies as for us too we were talking of taking to flight to-morrow when your voice made us draw the curtain bethink you sir that after us the hands that will serve you would not dare refuse to employ poison in the knife henry much moved resolved to follow the example of the duke of anjou his departure was fixed for the third of february fifteen seventy six he went and slept at Saint-Lys, hunted next day very early, and on his return from hunting, finding his horses baited and ready, quote, "'What news?' he asked. Quote, "'Sir,' said D'Aubing, "'we are betrayed. The king knows all. The road to death and shame is Paris, that to life and glory is anywhere else.'" Quote, "'That is more than enough. Away,' replied Henry. 
They rode all night, and arrived without misadventure at Alençon. Two hundred and fifty gentlemen, having been apprised in time, went thither to join the King of Navarre. He pursued his road in their company. From Saint-Lys to the Loire he was silent, but when he had crossed the river, quote, "'Praised be God who has delivered me,' he cried. "'At Paris they were the death of my mother.' there they killed the admiral and my best servants and they had no mind to do any better by me if god had not had me in his keeping i return thither no more unless i am dragged i regret only two things that i have left behind at paris mass and my wife as for mass i will try to do without it but as for my wife i cannot i mean to see her again he disavowed the appearances of Catholicism he had assumed, again made open profession of Protestantism by holding at the baptismal font in the conventicle the daughter of a physician amongst his friends. Then he reached Bern, declaring that he meant to remain there independent and free. A few days before his departure he had written to one of his Bernese friends, quote, The court is the strangest you ever saw. We are almost always ready to cut one another's throats. We wear daggers, shirts of mail, and very often the whole cuirass under the cape. I am only waiting for the opportunity to deliver a little battle, for they tell me they will kill me, and I want to be beforehand, end quote. Mesdames de Carnavalet and de Sauvé, two of his fair friends, had warned him that, far from giving him the lieutenant-generalship, which had been so often promised him, it had been decided to confer this office on the king's brother, in order to get him back to court and seize his person as soon as he arrived. End of section 46